Science and technology are an increasingly large part of our lives. We take a look at the interface between science and history, economics, philosophy, ethics, religion, and culture. That's Spark Dialogue Podcast, where it all comes together. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Robots have for a long time been part of our culture. At first in the realm of science fiction, we had C-3PO and R2-D2, WALL-E and the Terminator. Now they're cropping up in our everyday life, from robots that play soccer with President Obama to robots that serve us coffee. Particularly in Japan, robots hold a special place in people's lives. There, they are often seen as gentle and sometimes even loved, assuming roles within families. When robots are particularly human-like, though, we begin to see some thought-provoking consequences. For example, sometimes robots are gendered and look either male or female. Ever stop to question, why? What makes a robot become a certain gender? And what does that even mean? How are robots integrated into society, culture, and even religion? Today we are joined by Dr. Jennifer Robertson. Jennifer is a professor of anthropology and history of art and affiliate faculty of the Robotics Institute at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. She's a specialist in Japan, having lived there for over two decades, and her latest book is Robo Sapiens Japanicus, Robots, Gender, Family, and the Japanese Nation. So welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be able to talk with you and to be part of the Spark Dialogue. So when we're thinking about robots, people might have a lot of different ideas in their minds. I mean, we have the Roomba that vacuums our living room, and we also have Rosie, the robot maid on the Jetsons. So when you're talking about robots for this podcast, what are you referring to? So robots take many forms. Uh, Roomba, of course, is one of the most popular robots uh, on the planet, actually. But many people, when they think about a robot, when they hear the word robot, uh, they immediately think of the robots in science fiction novels or science fiction films. When you ask a roboticist to define a robot, uh, the roboticist will pause and uh, say, well, it's really hard to do because the definition is changing all the time. So when I was writing my book, Robo Sapiens Japanicus, it was really important for me to come up with a definition of robot that was a uh, pretty much fit all the different kinds of definitions that I was hearing from uh, roboticists. Basically, what you can say definitively is that a robot is a collection of different kinds of technological parts. You have optics, motors, batteries, uh, ceramic materials, haptics for touch. Uh, all of these together put into some sort of form, which can, again, uh, look like many different things from a Roomba to a humanoid, all of these technologies together allow a robot to navigate its environment, which is what distinguishes a robot from an automaton. Often these two terms are collapsed, but an automaton can really only do one thing that has been programmed into it. A robot, on the other hand, by definition, is a machine that can be influenced by its environment to change a course of direction, to change function, to change a task. Uh, it is uh, very uh, versatile, and uh, this has led to many assumptions about robot autonomy. But there are basically th three forms of robot embodiment. You have the industrial robot that looks like an arm, and these are most plentiful in factories, and particularly automotive factories. Uh, Japan used to have the most number of industrial robots, but now uh, Japan has been overtaken by Korea, where 
nearly 500 robots uh, exist per 10,000 human laborers. Japan is second. And the United States is a distant uh, seventh, I believe, at the moment. Uh, that, so that's an industrial robot. It kind of looks like the function it was designed to do. You also have humanoids that resemble a human being in the sense of having a kind of a head, a kind of a torso, uh, oftentimes uh, limbs. Uh, they can have legs and be bipedal. Uh, it's much more simple to have a robot uh, role. Uh, rather than to walk. Bipedal robots uh, are very fragile and unstable, actually. And then you have the androids, the robots that can, from a distance, actually pass as a human being. And those are basically what I'd like to call telepresencing kinds of dolls. Uh, interacting with an android uh, is a lot like Skyping with a mannequin. So in Japan, the focus has been on uh, humanoids, I mean, apart from the industrial robots used in factories, but for entertainment purposes, for caregiving, for companionship, it's the humanoid form, the form that most invokes the image of a human being. You spent a lot of time in Japan. I think you spent over two decades in Japan. And so there, as you mentioned, the robots are, are huge. They're in a lot of components of everyday life. So you mentioned a few roles that they're in as far as interacting with people and as caregivers and as forms of entertainment. So does the role of robots in Japanese culture really differ from what we see in other parts of the world? That's an interesting question. Japan certainly has the edge in terms of being associated with a robotizing society. And that is because of the initiative uh, first uh, proposed by Prime Minister Abe in 2007, during his first administration, he was reelected in 2012, in promoting the robotization of Japan as a way to forestall uh, labor shortages, uh, as a way to introduce caregiving and child raising in a way that uh, would encourage uh, more women to uh, get married and to have children. You have not only the most rapidly aging population on the planet, but also in Japanese society, uh, many women were eschewing marriage. Uh, once you marry, which is still the only sanctioned context for childbirth in Japan, uh, once you marry, if you're a woman, you become a second-class citizen. You lose your uh, independent income. Uh, you are in a, a very closed domestic situation where you have to care for, as is often the case, elderly relatives, including in-laws, and uh, even once after your children are old enough so that you can return to work, you won't find the same level of job and might be resigned to working part-time as a checkout clerk in a supermarket. So many women are reluctant to forego their careers for marriage and child raising in a, a very traditional uh, life uh, that doesn't offer them uh, anything in the way of career uh, kind of accomplishment. So that's still true today? That's very true today. Absolutely. Oh, okay. So Prime Minister Abe, uh, who has also been reluctant to encourage immigration, which is a longstanding Japanese practice. I mean, automation has always been preferred over replacement migration. Part of the mythology of Japan is a, a single ethnic group uh, nation and that foreigners would somehow pose difficulties in understanding in um, the ability to feel comfortable 
if one is uh, elderly or uh, needs care in the hospital. And so the idea that there would be these robots, made in Japan robots, that could do that kind of work was uh, celebrated by Prime Minister Abe in 2007. However, 10 years later, it seems that uh, you know, some of those early robot prototypes and, and, and the early excitement about uh, robot caregivers and um, child raising made robots uh, has not actually panned out. Uh, the technology is much more difficult. The challenges are much more uh, awesome than uh, was ever anticipated. So in my book and also in many lectures I give, I try to separate the hype about robots uh, from the reality. I call this a robot reality check. So with respect to Japan as a kind of a robot kingdom, I think we have to be aware that many of the robots that are reported on in the mass media and uh, you know celebrated in uh, YouTube videos are actually prototypes. I'd like to say that Japanese are not sharing sidewalk space with robots. You only find them in very select uh, settings that are also very carefully supervised and controlled. A science museum, for example, a robot being tested in a classroom situation, a robot in a, a nursing home that is uh, you know, leading the residents in exercises. These are largely only for very short-term testing experiments. Uh, it's often the case that these robots are not actually uh, incorporated into uh, daily life in the nursing home, much less uh, in the average Japanese home. Yeah. And one thing that you talked about in your book a lot was the gendering of robots. And so in the introduction, I mentioned Rosie, the robot maid, and her name is Rosie, not Robert. And so this is a, an example of a robot that has a gender. So why would you even make a gender for a robot? Well, you could ask that question about humans. Why do professions and <laughs> occupations and, you know, why is clothing uh, gendered? Uh, and that goes way back beyond, uh, I think, where we want to go with this podcast. But it has <laughs> to do with the binary construction of sex, basically. Uh, mostly you have males and females identified by their anatomy. But gender is a cultural attribution that bodies, anatomical bodies, are basically fit into. So you have many more definitions of gender than you do about sex. Of course, there are intersexed individuals, but that's a, a separate thing altogether. So in the case of males and females, which is how I like to refer to the, the anatomical bodies as opposed to men and women, which is more the, the gendered appearance, you have uh, stereotypes like females are associated with pink, associated with certain kinds of hobbies and pastimes and occupations, and even salary levels, which you know we're always complaining about at the university, uh, and uh, the opposite uh, with uh, males. And only now, I think, there's uh, a general discourse in society in the United States, as well as in Japan, about uh, institutionalized uh, sexism. That said, many roboticists, uh, in my experience, both in the United States and in Japan, have never questioned the distinction between sex and gender or between the uh, identification of a particular profession or occupation uh, with uh, a sex or a gender. So when they're imagining robots uh, functioning in society or being incorporated uh, into the workplace, they already have the gender of the robot in mind as determined by the particular job that they want the robot to engage in and to attend to. 
So you have, for example, a robot that is designed to be a security guard uh, and to patrol the premises of a shopping mall or a warehouse uh, being designed to look big and burly and to have uh, the navy blue colors of a police officer's uniform worked into its overall design. Whereas a robot that is designed to take care of uh, elderly people, lead them through exercises in a nursing home, as I mentioned earlier, will be a child size humanoid with uh, big eyes, whether they're LED or doll-like uh, eyes, and be light in color. And uh, they will have a, a wholly unthreatening kind of appearance, uh, oftentimes a feminized appearance. So the stereotypes about professions that uh, exist in the human world are transferred uh, to robots. The various roles that these robots are fulfilling, there's more female gendered robots in things like hospitality and things like they're trying to be helpful to the user, whereas in things like you mentioned with security or military applications, maybe they're more male robots. So do you think that this is reinforcing gender roles in society for humans as well? Absolutely. Some robots are created in a more gender neutral uh, design. And so it's the buyer or the user who will supply the gender, usually in the form of a name or in the kind of relationship the individual, the human individual wants with the robot. But the robots that are gendered, you know, from the design phase are those that the roboticist has imagined fitting a particular uh, type of uh, function. And this isn't just a thing that's seen in Japan either. I mean, a good example in the United States is the voice that comes along with Alexa or Siri or Cortana or Google Maps even. They're all female voices. That's right. I believe I don't actually use those uh, myself, <laughs> but I believe that depending on the software, and of course, depending on the, the company, you can uh, have a different voice uh, to interact with, right? Yeah, you can have a different voice, but the default is always a female voice. Yes, that's right. I think many of these um, tech designers, the vast majority of whom are male, really see the male sex as the default sex. And so when they are creating their devices, uh, they think of themselves as the user and uh, somehow default to this more heteronormative kind of relationship with the machine, you know, and uh, a discussant or an interlocutor. That's an interesting way to look at it. I always thought it was also something to do with if a female voice is telling you what to do, people are less likely to get insulted by it, whereas a male voice is more domineering and more telling you what to do rather than suggesting what to do, if that's part of your psychology. I, supp I suppose. I mean, that in itself is already a kind of a gendered stereotype that females are, are you know, more polite and less well, likely exactly. to be impaired. Exactly. And uh, I don't know. It's not my experience of many females. But <laughs> <laughs> I think you can have, um, you know, a gender a neutral kind of voice, an androgynous voice. But it, it seems that uh, many people, many users, certainly robot designers are more comfortable with going for uh, either a pink voice or a blue voice, so to speak. You mentioned the relationship that a lot of robot designers see towards their robots. And in your book, it reminded me of Osamu Tezuka, who's sort of like the parallel of Isaac Asimov. And so he also wrote science fiction and he came up with laws of robotics, much like Isaac Asimov did as well. And some of these are particularly interesting because some of these rules are that a robot should call its maker father and that a male and female robots shouldn't switch genders 
and they can't change their appearance and assume the identity without permission. So I think this is also interesting that a lot of these gender ideas come into these rules of robotics as well. That's very, very interesting. And I myself found it to be quite striking. Um, Asimov and Tezuka were contemporaries, and they were both physicians slash scientists who opted to become uh, science fiction writers. And they developed some of the earliest laws of robotics that many roboticists working with actual robots today have adapted in one form or the other. The interesting feature of Tezuka's 10 laws, as opposed to Asimov's, they say three laws, but he actually has four laws of robotics, is that uh, Tezuka's laws are situated in the family. And this is how uh, robots are imagined to enter into uh, human companionship and into uh, the space of human life. And it's through the family. And the family is kind of a regulatory umbrella, I guess, organization, you could say. And this ties into what I've written about uh, the Japanese not being so interested in robot ethics, which is a huge newly developing aspect of philosophy, for example, this uh, mm -hmm. philosophy of robot ethics and uh, some of the issues of a moral and ethical nature facing uh, social robots. But in Japan, it's the idea that if a robot is incorporated into the family, it's the way in which the family uh, works hierarchically that will also determine the so-called ethics of uh, robot-human interaction. So this idea that the robot should call its maker a father, the idea that uh, you already have uh, sex and gender for the robots, that robots can't reproduce money, for example, they can't uh, leave the country uh, without permission. All of these things are uh, ways in which family operates as a microcosm of the larger society in Japan. Whereas uh, in Asimov's case, there's a more general abstract notion of humanity versus machine. And so the idea is to make sure that the machines never challenge or usurp the authority and control of the humans. The, the Asimov's laws are really designed to protect humans from the machines, whereas Tezuka's laws are designed to create an environment uh, wherein humans and robots coexist. That's an interesting point, yeah. And so going back to the gender roles, so we talked a little bit about the things that robots do, that the things that a female robot would do versus what a male robot would do. But when we're talking about like androids, so robots that actually look like humans, and some of them really look like humans as well. So ones that are either made to look like women or men, a lot of times the bodies of the female robots are made to be very slender and the bodies of the male robots, they're made to look very strong, square shoulders and angular jaw and etc. And I think looking around at people, not every woman is slender and not every man has an angular jaw. So is this also a problem in reinforcing these type of body images we have towards men and women? Yes, actually what you describe uh, fits more the humanoids, which can be made out of a number of materials from ceramics to metals and plastics. So those humanoids in Japan uh, will be given these different body types depending on how they're gendered. For example, feminine or female robots will be much more uh, interiorized in the sense that a lot of the, the wires and the motors will be hidden uh, either by a ceramic mm -hmm. prosthetic cover, for example, giving them very smooth-looking arms, or through costumes, because many robots uh, also are fitted with uh, clothing. 
And you'll find that the more masculine or male robots uh, will have a more segmented body, kind of like, you know, the uh, six pack of the buff uh, athlete uh, and will have the square shoulders. Uh, They may also have Mm -hmm. a visor for a face instead of eyes and a pert little nose. So that's the way humanoids uh, are gendered. But when it comes to androids, the androids that can actually pass as humans uh, from a distance, they have faces and hands uh, that are made out of rubber, a kind of a silicon material that uh, very closely resembles skin. The most famous producer of androids is Ishiguro Hiroshi from Osaka University, and he's famous all over the world for his androids, which he calls geminoids because they are uh, created as body doubles. His male android called Geminoid HI for his initials, is the only male android that he's created. He's created a number of female androids, or gynoids, we might say, that uh, I think his first one was modeled after a famous television newscaster in Japan, and another one uh, modeled after a woman who remains anonymous. And this is Geminoid F, who has been cast in a movie called Sayonara, which means goodbye in Japanese, about a a robot uh, who takes care of the last remaining uh, human uh, on Earth. There's some sort of disaster, and this uh, young woman uh, has been left on the planet uh, when everybody else has escaped. She has cancer, and so the the robot, Geminoid F, reads uh, various kinds of poetry to her and uh, provides soothing companionship. And of course, the woman dies and the robot lives on forever. Uh, A movie was made of this play, and I don't think the movie is as successful as the theater version. Uh, For one, it's too long. When you have a robot play, uh, the batteries only last about 20 minutes, so the play has to be really tight and (laughs) needs to be a a pretty (laughs) compact storyline. But when you turn it into an hour and a half film, it loses, you know, some of its impact as a a, a play about robot-human interaction. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, So... Ishiguro has certainly contributed to the um, the, the uh, stereotyping of robots as male or female. In this case, it's not so much that they're gendered by the roboticist, but because they're modeled after actual humans, um, they, of course, have taken on the gendered appearance of those actual humans. Talking about robots in Japanese society in general, so one of the examples that you used was this iFairy wedding So there was a wedding between a real human man and woman that was presided over by a robot, (laughs) which which is interesting because I think it speaks to the role of robots in Japanese society. Weddings, a lot of times they have a religious context, or at least they have a strong societal context where the person presiding over it has some sort of authority. And so how does this work then when a robot is presiding over this wedding? You know, you can marry anybody you want uh, in Japan. You can do that too. Whether or not it has a you know, legal basis is another question. But weddings, for the most part in Japan, are not religious affairs. The only thing that legalizes a marriage in Japan is for the couple to go to City Hall and to sign a household register, period. So it doesn't matter if you are married by a robot, or if you uh, are married in a Christian church. The marriage is not 
legally sanctioned until you sign the more bureaucratic uh, document. It's called a koseki or a household uh, register in Japan. Also, there's a big component of robots in, in Japanese society. They also have a role in the religious sphere as well. And so there's a lot of Buddhist temples in Japan that actually offer funerals for robots that don't work anymore. Where does this leave the idea of robots in Japan that these inanimate objects could have funerals? Well, one, they're not considered inanimate at all. Um, they are very much part of the animate uh, world. And this has a lot to do with the fact that Japan is not a monotheistic and Abrahamic monotheistic society. Uh, that is to say, there is no you know, Jewish, Christian, uh, Islamic style God that is almighty, all powerful, omnipresent. You have more of a you know, several thousand year tradition of animism, wherein what appears to outsiders as inorganic or inanimate uh, is actually uh, infused with, uh, with a life force or a, a kind of a vital force that can be mobilized to uh, work on one's behalf, usually for good purposes. So a tree, for example, or a rock, uh, even an automobile, all of these have this vital force. Many people, when they buy a, a new car, will take it to a, a shrine, for example, a Shinto shrine, to be blessed, to make sure that the, the forces within the car will ensure safe driving and an accident-free use of the car. So robots also fit into this universe of living things. You know, the Shinto belief system is uh, concerned. Shinto itself means the way of the kami, kami being the Japanese term for these uh, vital forces. Now, the thing about funerals for robots is an extension of funerals or more appropriately memorial services for objects that have played a very important role in one's life or have been uh, cherished by one. So artists, for example, or calligraphers will have a favorite brush that helped them produce a lot of outstanding work. So when that brush has fallen apart, they'll take it to uh, Buddhist temples. Temples in Japan, Buddhist temples in particular, have monopolized funeral services, whereas Shinto shrines uh, tend to be places where life is celebrated and you know, fertility uh, is emphasized. So there's a kind of a division of labor between Shinto and Buddhism in Japan, uh, even though as early as the 6th century uh, common era, they were kind of uh, fused and uh, have certainly developed, uh, you know, in a parallel fashion. But to get back to these memorial services, so you have the, uh, in the case of the brushes, for example, uh, they are burned on a kind of a pyre and the the fire releases their spirit into the air. And then there's a special memorial tablet that is uh, made that becomes a substitute body for the uh, cremated calligraphy brush. Uh, the same is true mm -hmm. of tailors uh, who often will uh, have their needles melted down in this kind of uh, ceremony or children uh, who will take their favorite dolls that you know are falling apart and have them cremated uh, in one of these ceremonies. And these are attended publicly. Um, and many of them take place at certain times of the year. And so you'll have at certain temples in Japan, you know, an announcement of a doll uh, memorial ceremony. Now, in the case of robots, and particularly toy robots like Aibo, uh, Sony's dog robot that was actually discontinued in 2006, and only 
this last year was reproduced. But the thing about having a memorial service for robot is that they have all sorts of uh, toxic components. So you can't just burn them. You'd be releasing toxic components, but you would also be uh, wasting and forfeiting all of the valuable you know, minerals and uh, substances out of which they're made, gold, platinum, for example, rare earth minerals. So what one or two temples uh, in Japan have done is to offer memorial service for the robot, but then to have that tied to a recycling program, because it's kind of a pain to, uh, to recycle robots and cell phones and laptops and things like that. And so if the temple is going to take that on, uh, many people feel it's win-win. Wow, I can have a memorial service for my favorite robot toy and also my laptop, which has contained all of my memories and, <laughs> and has been a source of great joy uh, when I email friends and you know write letters and things like that. So it's a, a win-win proposition for the user and the, um, the person who goes to the temple and also for uh, the temple itself. That said, I visited uh, one of these temples, Banshoji, in Nagoya last summer, and they had actually discontinued this memorial and uh, recycling service. It just, uh, there weren't enough robots to go around. And I think the recycling proved to be a little more complicated and expensive than they had initially thought. Uh, one sort of amusing antidote that you also mentioned in your book were these robotic dinosaurs called pleos. <laughs> and that if your pleo is malfunctioning within the 90-day warranty window, you could send it back and have it reincarnated and have all the memories uploaded and then get back a new pleo dinosaur, essentially as all the memories and experiences of the old one. And that made me laugh a little bit because I wonder, does reincarnation exist for pleos who are past their 90-day warranty window? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. You know, pleos are not even a Japanese uh, robot, but it's certainly very popular in Japan. Many people in Japan who are practicing Buddhists that trains you to not covet and not to have a, a greedy attitude toward money or luxury or things that can keep you from becoming a moral and ethical and empathic person. And the idea is that you know, when you die, you attain nirvana and Buddhahood. I mean, everybody can attain Buddhahood after death. But many New Age Buddhists in Japan are saying, well, I didn't really get enough done in this life, and I'd really like to be <laughs> reincarnated, which is kind of contrary to traditional, more orthodox Buddhism, where you don't want to be reborn into a life filled with suffering and greed, war, and uh, all kinds of tensions and distractions that take you away from this path of self-improvement and empathy. So it's interesting how this um, idea of robot reincarnation has also illuminated uh, New Age Buddhist practices in Japan. Animals and people can attain Buddhahood in Buddhism, so can robots as well? One of the most well-known roboticists in Japan, Masahiro Mori, uh, wrote a book that in English was translated as The Buddha in the Robot. And this is the idea that because robots are human creations imbued with what he calls uh, a Buddha nature. So it's more like the, the uh, interacting with a robot is a way for uh, humans to create a kind of, uh, I wouldn't say a mirror exactly, but the kind of robot they create will reflect 
uh, humanity and uh, toward the imagination of a better world uh, for humans. So if you create robots for uh, warfare purposes or killer robots, it certainly reflects unkindly uh, on your own lack of a Buddha nature, your own lack of any kind of sense that there's a more enlightening way uh, for people to utilize their technology. All the things that we've been discussing about the ways that robots are incorporated into Buddhist faith and Buddhist ideas, I wonder if in the West, a lot of times people are concerned with this, what they call playing God, you know, making robots who could become self-aware at some point. And people look upon this very nervously. So is that same idea seen in Japan as well? Or is because robots are seen so differently, that's not an issue? I think the latter, basically. Um, and I, you know, in answering this way, I don't mean to offend anybody who's a practitioner of an Abrahamic uh, monotheistic faith. But in Japan, quite frankly, there is no God uh, to play. So this uh, idea that roboticists in creating uh, humanoids or androids is somehow playing God uh, simply is not thinkable or even much discussed. And it certainly doesn't bother roboticists, much less the consuming public. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. This is Elizabeth Fernandez for Spark Dialogue Podcast. In addition to finding us on facebook.com slash sparkdialogue and on Twitter at Spark Dialogue, we're also now on Pinterest. Just go ahead and search for Spark Dialogue Podcast. Also, you can find show notes and past episodes at sparkdialogue.com. And if you haven't subscribed to or rated the podcast yet, and you need a little help in doing so, I've made a little walkthrough on how to do so on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and so on. And you can find this at sparkdialogue.com slash how-to-subscribe. Oh, and we're also now on Spotify, so that's another great place that you can listen to this podcast. This is Elizabeth Fernandez, and as always, thanks for listening.